0: I invite you to take your Bibles tonight and you can turn to Revelation chapter 19 to begin with. As I again want to continue along the same prophetic theme that I taught last Wednesday night. And instead of teaching on the rapture tonight, I'd like to teach on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the battle of Armageddon. You know, in light of the conflict in the Middle East that's brewing right now and Israel's war, I thought this subject is certainly apropos and it will gather people's attention. Things are boiling over in the Middle East, but what is going to happen prophetically? In fact, what is the climactic chapter of the entire book of Revelation, a highly prophetic book in the New Testament? We're going to see that tonight with the victorious return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the battle of Armageddon. Jesus Christ will return to establish his kingdom on the earth at the battle of Armageddon, where he defeats his foes. And once he sets up his kingdom on the earth, it will be irreversible and eternal from that point forward, and his foes will not gain the victory ever again. And we have that to look forward to. In fact, one of the things I'm looking forward to is that once Jesus Christ comes back, we'll never have another election in this country again. (laughs) Hallelujah, right? But as we think of key events down through human history, certainly there have been a few, in fact, four, as several Bible scholars have pointed out. As we think of four key events, certainly creation is a key event. Without creation, none of us would even be here, right? So that one's kind of obvious. And assumed under that is the subject of the fall of Adam and Eve and the human race into sin. And then after that was the flood that covered the earth, which certainly changed the topography of the earth and showed that there was universal judgment at one time and there will be again coming up with the Lord's second coming. And then, of course, a pivotal event was the Lord's first coming into the world, in which he gave his life as a substitute for all of our sin, to pay for it in full, so that we could be fully forgiven in God's sight and have the assurance that we have eternal life. And he raised his son from the dead as well, so that our faith is in a risen Savior and an ascended Savior, who's at the right hand of God the Father as well. All that was true at his first coming. But tonight we're going to focus on his second coming, His return to the earth in great power and glory and judgment. And so we will focus on that event as well as the battle of Armageddon that ensues when he returns. Now as we think of battles through human history, there have been several that are very famous. Perhaps you recognize this picture. It's of Waterloo, 1815, where Napoleon was famously defeated. And as we say, he met his Waterloo. Then there was Gettysburg in the Civil War, July of 1863. And remember the Alamo, February of 1836. And then there was Little Bighorn, or Custer's Last Stand, June of 1876, where Custer was defeated. And then there was in World War II, Iwo Jima, in February to March of 1945. And you know, as you think about war, endemic to the human race, Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, it seems like there has been incessant war on planet Earth. One source that I read estimates the number of wars fought over the last 6,000 years at approximately 50,000 wars. Of course, God only knows. Another source that I read said over the last 3,400 years, there have been only 268 years where humanity on the globe was entirely at peace. As far as we know. Only 268 years out of 3,400. That's a lot of war. But we're going to see tonight in the Word of God that there is one great war yet to come at the end of the Tribulation, which was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. It's described in the New Testament as well, especially Revelation 19, where we will study tonight. And it is the war to end all wars. Hallelujah at least for 1000 years we'll see after that war. And again, it's the return of Jesus Christ. And I wanna say if you're a believer here tonight, what we're going to read is a description of your future because you will be there. In fact, I know we have some veterans in our audience here tonight as part of our congregation. I won't ask you to stand up. I'm sure we have some. Most of you are not veterans. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, I'll tell you what, you're gonna get your veteran status one day, all of you, because we'll be there and part of that. And you've seen this prophetic chart many times before. We are currently in the church age. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church in which we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We'll be brought back to heaven. We'll get our new glorified bodies. We'll also be rewarded. That's when the judgment seat of Christ will take place. For the good deeds we have done in our Christian lives. Meanwhile, while we're in heaven, as Revelation 4 and 5 describe that scene, Revelation chapters 6 through 18 go on to describe all hell breaking loose on planet Earth. So, for a period of seven years, there'll be global tribulation. And then the Bible describes in Revelation 19 that we, as Christ's bride, will come back down to the earth, following in his victory train. And at his second coming to the earth, he will then conquer his enemies and set up his kingdom. So this event right here, circled in red, is where we want to focus tonight. That will be the subject of Revelation chapter 19. Now as we think of the return of Jesus Christ, this is an event that is all over the pages of Scripture. It's spoken of almost countless times. Someone has totaled this up, and I have to confess I haven't gone through and checked every reference to make sure the number is correct, but I've seen this in more than one place as a, as a number or a tally, and so we see that according to the Old Testament, there are 1,527 passages that make reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth, 330 in the New Testament. And so what this tells us is this is a very prominent theme In the Word of God. In fact, all of history is building climactically to that moment, just like the book of Revelation builds climactically to chapter 19. We can learn from this as well, that at Jesus Christ's first coming, he ascended into heaven in glory, Acts chapter 1. And while the disciples were blown away at the Shekinah glory in the cloud as Jesus disappeared into the heavens, Remember, they stood there gazing up into the heavens, just mesmerized, right? So that an angel standing by had to say, hey, guys, stop, think about this for a minute. There's something you need to grasp here. Acts one eleven, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's where Christ ascended to heaven, that spot. Remember, they had been on the Mount of Olives several times during Jesus' earthly ministry, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. In other words, on the Sabbath day, you don't want to work, so you would hardly crack a sweat in having to travel to the Mount of Olives. Well, where is that? It's just to the east of the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem, overlooking the temple area. So Jesus ascended from a literal mountain on a literal earth, and he will literally come again, the scriptures teach. What we can learn from this is Acts 1.11 promises Christ's second coming will be bodily, it'll be visible, just like when he ascended. They saw him go up. It was the same resurrection body that he had when he rose from the grave. And he is coming again. In fact, the Mount of Olives will come into play, as we'll see at his second coming to the earth. But before we look at Christ's return to the earth, let's see what events precede this return. In fact, before we see the battle of Armageddon as well, and the the war scene, we go to a more happy setting, so to speak. In fact, preparation for a bridal gown. Now, think if you were a bride here, to, you are a bride here tonight, or you've been married in the past. Do you remember that day when you were out shopping for uh, a wedding dress? And uh, it was fun to go look at dresses. And then you found one, you finally got one picked out, and then you had it tailored and fitted and everything, and you went in for the final fitting. Remember how excited you were? Well, that's what we're going to read about here with the Church of Jesus Christ as his bride. In Revelation 19, we see in this bridal context before the war and the return of Christ, it says in verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And who is the wife? It's the church of Jesus Christ. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now let me just say, I don't think this is the judgment seat of Christ right here. The reason I say that is because clear back in Revelation chapter 4, there are 24 elders seated around the throne. And they already have their crowns. And then they cast them at Jesus' feet, or the Lord's throne. And they worship God with those. That's us. I think we are already in heaven, already raptured in Revelation 4 and 5. So what is this scene all the way here at Revelation 19, right before we return down to the earth? This is a collective garment that the whole church gets, not our individual rewards, which we would have got at the judgment seat of Christ. So this is a corporate gown that we wear, a wedding dress, so to speak. Verse 9 goes on. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I believe that event is at the very beginning of the kingdom, after we've come back to the earth with Jesus Christ, and the battle of Armageddon takes place, and the kingdom then ensues. At the beginning of that kingdom is going to be a great marriage feast. We'll be there, and then the other guests who will be there will be Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, and of course the church. Age saints who are the bride of Jesus Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. In other words, you can bank on this. And I fell at his feet to worship him. John was so blown away that he falls down at the messenger's feet and worships the messenger. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And what a lesson there is there. That no matter who it is, an angel, an apostle, you know, even Peter, supposedly the Pope. Here we have the apostle John, and he's falling down before an angel. The point is, worship God. He's the only one worthy, not a man. And by the way, can even genuine saints commit idolatry? Obviously, if an apostle can, John here, then we can as well. But here's an amazing statement in verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I have to confess, I love studying Bible prophecy. It makes up, some have estimated, about 25, 26% of the entire Bible. It's a very significant aspect of the word of God. But I'll tell you this, if we get our prophecy charts right, and we study the times to see how everything's lining up with Scripture, and yet our hearts are not drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're not seeing Him in a greater way, so that He's getting the glory, and He's the focus of our faith and our walk, then we've terribly missed something, dear saints. You see, all of prophecy is designed to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why, in Revelation 19, now before the return of Christ to the earth and the battle of Armageddon, there's this extended section here of the next six verses that focus us on Jesus Christ. And John continues then in verse 11, and he says, Now I saw heaven opened. Now did John need to see heaven opened for his own personal sake? No. This is a picture again of Christ coming down to the earth. He's just recording what he saw. He already had access to these revelations. This was for humanity's sake. You see, the heavens will open on that day when Christ returns, not to let Christ out, but so that every eye on earth can see the Lord Jesus returning to the earth. Remember what it said in the very first chapter of the book of Revelation? Revelation 1, verse 7, that when he comes back, every eye will see him on planet earth. It'll be so spectacular and glorious, it'll be impossible to miss. Now, how God is going to do that in terms of geophysics, I don't know. But I know this, he put the universe in place, he created the stars, including little planet Earth, and there's nothing too hard for him, he'll figure that out. So that he can get every eye to see him if he's coming back from one direction. And by the way, I don't think this is a proof text here, for a flat earth. So let's not go there. Verse 11 continues, the heavens will be opened, and then it goes on to say, behold, a white horse. Jesus Christ comes back on a white horse. Now what is the significance of this white horse? Well, he's portrayed here as the warrior king. And it's very interesting that in the first century in the Roman Empire, there were victorious Roman generals who would, intentionally ride on white horses as a symbol of victory. One commentator of the past, J. Hampton Keithley, has written on this, and he says, "'The Roman triumph was the highest honor "'that could be bestowed on a victorious Roman general. "'It came from a Greek word "'that referred to a public and triumphal procession. "'The procession was a parade up the main street of Rome "'that led from the Forum to the Temple of Jupiter, "'which lay on the Capitoline Hill.'" The general was mounted on a white horse, which was a symbol of a a victorious triumph in the field over the enemies of the nation. First came the spoils of war, which were eventually given to the general's army and friends. Next came the captives who had been defeated and captured in battle, disarmed and in chains. Then came the general on his white horse, followed by his family, his friends, and his army. And you know what? As believers in Jesus Christ, as he proceeds on that victorious white horse as the general, we're family. We're children of God. We're a bride. We're his wife, the word of God says. We are his friends. We are his army. Do you see how this fits? Now, what we're reading about in Revelation 19, I want you to remember, and I appreciate that Philip even made a point of this in that last song we sang tonight, is that what we're reading here is not fiction. It is so different from our everyday world and what we see going on here that as we read this, we might in our minds think that, oh, well, this is just kind of idealistic, dreamy, surreal. This is, in fact, history that we are reading just future history that is yet to be fulfilled. Be sure of that. I'll tell you, Bible prophecy is not fiction. It is fact. And if it's future, that just means it hasn't been fulfilled yet. Now, why is Jesus Christ coming back on a white horse? Remember how he came in the triumphal entry the last week of his life, riding into Jerusalem? Did he come on a white horse like a Roman general, a conqueror, Demanding to be worshipped. Putting his boot on the neck of his enemies. Hardly. It was just the opposite. He rode in on a donkey. Picturing his humility. Because in humility, he was subjecting himself to the death that we all deserved. To die for our sin. But he took upon himself all of our sin in full. For every human being the entire human race and that humility is what drove him to the cross to lay down his life as a sacrifice as he said before that he came to serve and not to be served he came to give his life a ransom for many and I think there's a great spiritual lesson in that for us as believers isn't there that when it comes to this life which is very short we are here to serve right The serving comes first, the reigning will come later. The cross comes before the crown. And dear saints, it's tremendously worth it. Let's not lose sight of that. What is this life which is racing by so quickly? I can't believe I'm 55 years old already. How did that happen? I'm looking at the sands and the hourglass running out here. I'm at the end of my life. It goes by like a vapor. But this life, which may seem long when you start it, is very short in light of eternity. So what is the sacrifice that we make right now in light of the eternal reward that we can enjoy forever? It's nothing. It'll be worth it all, dear saints. Keep that in mind in this world that is full of trials and tribulations and a lot of bad news and hardship, right, frankly? A lot of growing darkness we see in the world but i see the light already on the horizon the coming of the lord jesus let's keep that as our perspective he comes on a white horse first he came into jerusalem on that donkey he returns on a white horse now this is really interesting if you've studied the book of revelation who else came on the scene riding a white horse do you remember revelation chapter six verses one and two The seals are broken that begin the tribulation time, and what is the first judgment unleashed on the world? A rider on a white horse having a bow and a crown coming forth to conquer, and he does conquer. It's the Antichrist who comes on the scene promising world peace, promising a physical salvation, a social, political problem solver, but not one that meets man's real spiritual need to deal with his sin problem like the Lamb of God did. You see, there's only one worthy one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason he is worthy to come back on that white horse, in contrast to the Antichrist, is because Jesus first had a servant's posture who went low in humility and laid down his life for us. That's why in Revelation 5, before the first seal is even broken, in Revelation 6, Revelation 5 describes him as the only one found worthy. So John doesn't have to weep anymore, and nor do we. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. There is a Redeemer for planet Earth. And I want to just implore you here tonight that if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ as the one who paid for your sin in full, Cease trusting in your works of any kind and put your faith only in what the Lamb has done for you. John 1.29, when John the Baptist saw him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we know that Jesus will return, not as the meek and mild Lamb, but rather as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5 describes him. So we have both pictures of the Lord Jesus here. In his word going on the Lord Jesus is described not only coming back on a white horse but it says he who sat on him was called faithful and true the Lord Jesus returns in victory and is called faithful and true why is he called faithful because he's reliable to fulfill all his promises and true meaning he is genuine he's authentic He's the real article. And boy, do we need that in our world today where everything is pretend and reality is getting blurred. He's the real Messiah, the real Christ, the real victor in contrast to the Antichrist who's coming. And by the way, when it comes to Satan who's going to put his man on the world stage, the Antichrist, Satan is just a copycat. He's the biggest copycat in the universe. He can't create anything. There's only one original creator, God. All Satan can do is take whatever God has created and twist and distort it and represent it and say, voila, now will you follow me? And he seeks to deceive the world through that means. But there is one genuine, authentic article, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is worthy of our trust, dear saints. All the promises he made in the Word of God, he will fulfill. Including his promises to return for us as a church at the rapture, his promise to return and deliver the nation of Israel from impending destruction, his promise to set up his kingdom on the earth. And if he doesn't do these things, then he's not truly God. But he is God, and he will fulfill these things. That's the point. It goes on in this passage to say that in righteousness he judges and makes war. I'm really thankful for this added qualification here that he not merely judges and makes war, but he does so in righteousness. Why is that? Because there have been people who've said, well, every war is unjust. I kind of grew up with that in my Catholic background, a very pacifist approach to the whole subject of war, and many theological liberals on the Protestant side take that position as well. You know, that's pretty hard to defend when you look at the scriptures and you see that there were some very godly saints involved in war down through history, like Abraham rescuing his nephew Lot, like Joshua in the conquest of the promised land, or the many battles of King David. These were not only just wars, they were in fact necessary. And I just want to say regarding Israel right now, and I know that There's all kinds of information being floated around out there about what's really happening in Israel. I'll tell you this. Israel didn't put a gun to the Palestinians' heads and make them do the horrendous things they did. There's no justification for that attack and the barbaric deeds that they did. I think Israel justly must deal with their enemies in their own nation. But think about war. It's a horrible thing, even though it may be justified. Who likes to use that level of force that can take someone else's life? It shouldn't be something that we take pleasure in. In fact, I think we are so used to grace, kind of like fish swimming in a fishbowl surrounded by water. They're so used to water, they don't even know what life is like outside of the fishbowl. That's kind of like us, swimming in oceans of grace. In this 2,000 year grace period called the church age that we're in, we're just so used to grace, so that when God finally drops the hammer of his justice, it almost seems unjust. How can you do that? Well, remember, I've been pouring out grace, holding out the offer for 2,000 years to a Christ rejecting world that is ripening, and the grapes of wrath are building. For the winepress to be trampled. That's coming, dear saints. In righteousness he judges and makes war. And he's also described here as having on his head, in verse 12, many crowns. Crown him with many crowns, we sing. Now, why does he wear many crowns? Well, the word that's used here is diadema. Rather than Stephanus. A Stephanus was a victor's crown, one who uh, acquired that in an athletic competition, let's say, one who ran the race and was given a Stephanus, a reward for his deeds. But here the word is diadema, which speaks of a king's crown in particular. And the reason why he has more than one king's crown on his head is because he has seized the crowns of his enemies when he comes back at Armageddon. Now, how exactly he's going to wear more than one crown on his head, I don't, know. I don't know how that works either. Maybe it's one crown at a time. You know, when you think about the crowns that we will get as believers, as a reward, the crown of righteousness, crown of glory, crown of life, etc., I don't think we're going to be wearing three at a time, you know, stacked on our head like checkers. You ever thought about that? We'll probably get one at a time. In fact, we're going to take them off our head and throw them at Jesus' feet anyway. Then he probably hands us the next one if we get more than one crown, and we throw that one at his feet too. So he can wear more than one crown. But it goes on, verse 12, to say his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now what attributes of his are emphasized here in verse 12? First of all, his eyes were like a flame of fire. We see this of him in Revelation chapter 1, that great opening scene of the majestic and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He had eyes burning with fire, a penetrating gaze. That speaks of his penetrating omniscience. He knows everything. He can look right at us and through us, and he can see every motive of our heart. So I'll tell you what, better to live your life transparently before the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he sees it all, And just have a clean, pure heart before Him. If we've sinned, just confess it. He'll forgive. Don't waste your life trying to cover and hide. He sees it all. And He sees when we're sorrowful, He sees when we're down, He sees when we need encouragement. He knows everything. We also see He has many crowns. This speaks of His absolute sovereignty, He doesn't have a delegated sovereignty. The Word of God says that he is final and absolute sovereignty. He also has a name written that no one knew. It's incomprehensible. Now, there's a lot revealed about Jesus Christ in the Word of God, but there are some things about him that we will never know. And you know what? I'm actually glad for that, because that tells me that he's greater than I am, and the one I'm going to worship for eternity, I'm never going to get bored with and feel like I've exhausted everything about him. He's incomprehensible in some ways. Now, what is noteworthy about his clothing here in verse 13? It says that his robe was dipped in blood. He has a robe dipped in blood. Now, some have proposed that this robe was the blood of the Lamb, his own blood that he shed at Calvary, and that's why it's dipped in blood here. I don't think that is the case. In fact, it really doesn't seem to match with the rest of Scripture. Rather, this is the blood of others who he has conquered. That fits with what is specifically prophesied in Isaiah 63, 1 through 3, where it describes him at his return to the earth. It says, who is this one who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? And by the way, we'll see that's Jesus Christ returning from protecting the Jews at the end of the tribulation, having conquered his enemies who were trying to destroy the Jews He has trampled them, and he has his own garments soaked in their blood. With dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Who is the only one who will trample the winepress? Not you and me. We'll come back with the Lord Jesus in his victory train, but we're not going to get in and trample the grapes of wrath. That's his job to do as the just judge. So that's why his robes are red. But going on in verse 13, it also describes him as the Word of God. He had a name. The new one knew, his clothes were dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The Word of God. Doesn't this bring us back to the Gospel of John? In fact, John chapter 1, as we begin reading in that great Gospel, one of my favorite books in the Bible... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a reference to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was with God the Father from the very beginning. A few verses later, verse 14, chapter 1 goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ became incarnate as the Word. He dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you know, after chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, the word grace disappears, but the concept doesn't. How is grace demonstrated and truth throughout the book of John? In many ways. In fact, I would say that it, it culminates at the cross, where the Lamb lays down his life. He pours out his blood, gives up his life in grace for our sins. And he rises from the dead. And there are many aspects of the character of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ and his glory manifested as you study the life of the Lord Jesus, his deeds, his words, everything about him. He was a walking, talking revelation of God the Father. That's why it says in John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He's literally exegeted him, the passage says. He is the exegesis of God the Father. You want to know God? Get to know Jesus. It goes on to say in verse 14 that the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, in verse 14, we have a temporary shift to those who follow Jesus, namely us. From the victor, now to the fellow victors riding in his victory train. And who is this a reference to? This is no doubt a reference to the Lamb's wife, the church. And the reason I say this is because the garments that are mentioned in verse 14 are a particular Greek word, businos, that is used only one other place in the book of Revelation. You know where that is? Back in verse 7 and 8 to describe the garment that we're going to wear as the bride of Christ the only other place that particular word is used. Now, chapter 15, verse 6, describes an angel having fine linen, but it's a different word. The only place this word is used is of the church. So that's who we are coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's really interesting about verse 14 is to note what isn't mentioned. When we come back with Jesus Christ, where are... The weapons, where's your hand grenade, where's your M16, where are the Abrams tanks, where are the F16s and F35s, they're not there. You know why? We don't need them. We've got the word of God with a sword coming out of his mouth to do all the fighting. I think that's what's significant here. Even though we are the army that follows the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to do all the fighting. In fact, he does such a perfect job at it, we don't even have to lift a finger and help him out. What does that remind you of? His first coming. When he did all the work to procure our salvation. And we just had to trust in him. Isn't that true when it comes to our first tense salvation? We trust in him who did all the work, and we're eternally justified. And then as we live our Christian life, we put our faith in him who does it all in and through us. As we walk by faith, though our volition's involved, and the same will be true in glory. So we we are traveling with him in this return as non-combatants. What will be our role? Not sure. At least observers, maybe on the battlefield reporters, Now, some people have said, well, what are these white horses? Is this just figurative? Is this poetic language, or is this going to be literal? Well, I have to think that it's probably literal. But are there really horses in heaven? Now, I know there's a lot of horse lovers who would like to think there are. (laughs) You know, when our family went to Kentucky, my daughter fell in love with Kentucky. Can we move here to Kentucky? As we went to, you know, the Kentucky Downs, and we... Saw these horse ranches and stuff. Well, I think that these horses may be created just for this special occasion. And would that be anything too difficult for the one who created everything? And by the way, doesn't the Bible say Jesus is the creator? Yes, he is. So he can create horses for this occasion. No problem. By the way, again, just for clarification, I don't think we can use this passage as justification for our pets, when they die, going to heaven. And I know that that's a touchy subject with some people. We had our dog, our family dog of 14 years, die just a a couple of weeks ago. It was pretty sad. Emotionally, a lot of people would like to think their dogs are going to be there, or their pets, when they get to heaven. The Bible just doesn't support that. Sorry to rain on your parade. But going on, we also see that the angels are going to accompany us as we come back to the earth. I believe that this graphic right here is an accurate picture. We will have an angel escort preceding us, and then we will follow behind the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, are we not overcomers as believers? 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, say that all who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are born again, are overcomers. That's why we sang tonight, Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We simply put our faith in the one who did all the overcoming, the conqueror himself, Jesus Christ. You know, the word overcome is only used one time in the Gospel of John, and it's Jesus saying that about himself. John 16, verse 33. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. It's interesting that in the Gospel of John, some have called it the gospel of belief, Why? Because that word believe occurs 98 times in that gospel. What's really interesting is you come to the book of Revelation, guess how many times the verb believe is used in the whole book, all 22 chapters? Zero. But guess how believers are described as overcomers? Why? Because Revelation is a victory theme and context. It's the whole point of the book. That Christ gets the victory in the end. And so do those who believed in him, who took it in the neck for all these years. It'll be worth it all, dear saints, one day. And so, this picture is accurate. The angels are going to come with us. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Matthew 25, 31 says, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne, etc. So guess what? We're going to have wingmen accompanying us. And those wingmen will have wings. Now, how many of you have ever seen, don't raise your hand, Top Gun, Maverick? I saw them. I thought they were good movies. In fact, I thought Maverick was better than Top Gun, actually. But in those movies, they're always talking about having a good wingman. You know, you're going to be a fighter pilot. you got to have a good wingman. Well, guess what? We are literally going to have wingmen who are the angels who will outmaneuver any F-35 that any government can come up with. Won't that be wonderful? Going on, verse 15 and 16, it says in this passage of Jesus, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Notice the he himself, he himself. Again, he doesn't need our help, dear saints. He does it all. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The next thing we see about Jesus here, before we even get to the Battle of Armageddon, is that he has absolute and final authority on planet Earth. Again, he doesn't have just a delegated authority. It says in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, that all judgment has been given to him from God the Father. So God the Father literally says, Judgment, Jesus, that's totally your department. Go do it. Acts 10, verse 36 says, Jesus is Lord of all. And various passages emphasize the same truth. He is the supreme court and the final authority when he judges it'll be final everything will be settled and I say that because we live in a world in which there's must, much injustice today and many people go to their graves without having received proper justice but as a believer in Jesus Christ you can be assured that true justice is coming Christ will take care of it so we've seen the return of Jesus Christ Chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, or at least the description of the one returning. Now we see in verses 17 through 21, the battle of Armageddon. Going on, we read in verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sat on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that would be the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army." Now as I read these verses, I am astounded that the Antichrist and the armies of the world would even attempt to make war with the Lord Jesus Christ and us. Why do I say that? Because when Jesus Christ comes back, he's in his resurrection-glorified, immortal body. And you know what? So are we. How can he make war against us and succeed? We will be the in superhero language of today, the Indestructibles, right? You're going to be part of that team. And yet, I think Satan in his pride, blind is blind. Pride is blinding. He doesn't look at things with realistically. He has an overinflated estimation of his own abilities, and that's what pride does. Does he think that he can honestly conquer Jesus Christ? Yes, I think he's so twisted in his thinking that he actually thinks that at this point. And he will be terribly, terribly disappointed. Now, another truth that we see here regarding the battle of Armageddon is that it mentions this great supper of God. And by the way, I don't think that this refers to the marriage supper of the the Lamb that we read about earlier in verse 9. That is an event that's going to happen At the beginning of the kingdom, after this great supper that we read about, which takes place at the return of Christ on the earth, and it's a reference to judgment here, known as Armageddon. In fact, this great supper of God here, where the birds of prey are invited to come, it's pretty ominous when you think about it. You know, as a believer during this church age, aren't you glad that you put in your reservation for the other marriage supper, or the other supper that's going to be in the kingdom, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and not this great supper of slaughter that we read in this passage? Think about it. Here, this great supper of slaughter, the participants and invited guests are the food itself for the supper that is to be served. They're invited to come and they will be partaken of how ominous the host invites the guests who then will be hosted upon Wow what a picture and this is Armageddon and a lot of people when they think of Armageddon you know they freak out a lot of preachers just use this as kind of a scare word it's the title of movies It is the name for some survival gear for the end times. It, in fact, is an internet game or the title of a book that is a New York Times bestseller or was. So even the average guy on the street knows and has heard the word Armageddon, but does he really know what it is? Do we as believers know what this battle is? Oftentimes it's used just kind of synonymously with the end of the world. Is that what it is? Well, no. It's maybe the end of this world system, that's true, which is a good thing, as Jesus will put the kibosh on this evil world system that Satan is running. So what Armageddon really represents is the control, the power, the justice, and the overcoming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful and true one who judges righteously. And it's a particular campaign, in fact, not just one battle, per se. So as we define it, we could say that Armageddon is the final war, and the term that's used there, war, palamas," it's used back in chapter 16, 14 as well, speaks not just of one battle, but of a series of battles as part of a campaign. A campaign of Antichrist and the armies of the entire world against the nation of Israel, and Jesus Christ. And by the way, you could put us in there as well. Satan thinks that he can overcome us as well. Obviously, he won't. But he really wants to destroy Israel. Now, at this point in chapter 19, we're going to cut away and go back to Revelation chapter 16. And we're not hopscotching here through the word of God and just picking and choosing what we want. You have to understand that being in Revelation 19 right here, this is an explanation of what was referred to and introduced back in chapter 16 during the seal judgments there. And what is parenthetical in between is the long explanation in chapters 17 and 18 of Babylon. That's a whole other subject. So we're going to go back to chapter 16, and this is what it says in verses 12 through 16 of Armageddon, which is introduced for the first time in Revelation right here. Contextually, this is again towards the end of the tribulation. It says, verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that would be Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, that would be the, false, uh, the antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, there's your unholy trinity, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world for what purpose? To gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Jesus speaks there and he inserts this appeal to the reader, I think even during the church age, reading what's coming up In the tribulation time just to remind us that hey I'm coming as a thief let me catch you away you don't want to be part of all this that I'm describing here in the bold judgments and tribulation verse 16 says and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon so there we have it what is Armageddon well the word itself means a hill of destruction literally The Hebrew word for hill is har, or mountain, is har. Megiddo speaks of destruction. And so the place where this takes place, and these armies of the world are going to be gathered with the Antichrist, is a place in Israel that is identified as Megiddo. Now technically this hill is not a mountain, it's a a tell. It's an actual location. You can see where Megiddo is located here, in the northwest of Israel today, not very far from Nazareth where the Lord Jesus grew up as a boy. But Megiddo is part of a plain, a wide-open plain called the Valley of Jezreel. And Megiddo is on the the southern side of it. And this tell, this mound, is where Megiddo is located. That's har Megiddo, And that tell overlooks the rest of the plain. Now, a tell is technically something that You had one layer of civilization at one time who lived there many years ago, and when that civilization collapsed, another civilization was built on top of that. So as the centuries go by, that mound just keeps growing. Just a little technical footnote there. But that's where this is located, in this valley of Jezreel. It is a stretch of land in this valley that is 20 miles long from northwest to southeast and it's 14 miles wide at its widest point and it's been the site of many historic battles now and through the centuries in fact napoleon defeated the ottoman turks there in 1799 and he purportedly said at that time that this site is the ideal battlefield for the armies of the world to fight their battles on and a lot of people make statements of, that are absolutely true to the word of god and they don't even know it We could say amen to Napoleon and what he said so this is where it's going to take place we've seen the what of the battle of Armageddon or war of Armageddon we've seen who will be there and where Armageddon will take place now let's consider the when this religious and military campaign will take place at the end of the tribulation the end of the tribulation the end of seven years right as Jesus Christ is about to return to the earth with us now having described all that about Armageddon let's just clarify for a moment what will not be true of Armageddon what isn't it well it is not the end of the world when Jesus Christ comes back and he defeats his enemies at Armageddon will that be the end of the world well the end of this world system under Satan true but that will be the ushering in of the beginning of the thousand years of Christ's kingdom on the earth to be followed by the new heavens and new earth and a new Jerusalem. What all that means, dear saints, is this, that as you see the world kind of the pressure building right now, all over the world, not just in America, but everywhere, we all know this is building to something, but it doesn't mean the end of the world. In fact, my mother, who is a Roman Catholic who, Just started reading portions of the Bible recently. She's asked me twice in the last three years, Tom, is this the end of the world? Because it sure seems like it. And I just want to tell you, dear saints, this old, tired earth has a lot of life left to be lived on it. Don't think that the end is drawing near. In many ways, it's just the beginning of something better. It's the birth pangs that will come in the tribulation. And That just means things are going to get better after the judgment so no it's not the end of the world but secondly it's not primarily this Armageddon is not about man destroying himself and I say that because sometimes people talk about Armageddon in the context of like nuclear annihilation mutually assured destruction you know the mad policy of the cold war era no man is not going to annihilate himself now there will be mass death in the tribulation true But we can be assured that there's obviously a lot of people around at the end of the tribulation to war against Christ, though about half the world's population dies in the tribulation. Thirdly, Armageddon is not something that will happen tomorrow. You can be sure of that. Nor even next week or even next month. And I'll guarantee it, it won't even be next year. At the very earliest, it's at least seven years away. And you can say that based on the word of God and what it says about prophecy. Here's another clarification about what Armageddon is not. It is not the same as the battle of Gog and Magog, described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which I think happens towards the beginning of the tribulation, first half. And then this phrase Gog and Magog is also used of a conflict at the end of the thousand year kingdom, in Revelation 20, where Satan's released from the bottomless pit, gathers up an army temporarily, The Lord snuffs that out immediately. It's hardly even a battle. And so there are two episodes in scripture of battles where God comes in and he just takes care of his adversaries swiftly. No, Armageddon is not the same as Gog and Magog. Now, another thing that we need to clarify is that Armageddon comes in stages. And I'm going to go through these rather quickly for time's sake. First of all, in the first stage, the Antichrist and the world's armies are gathered satanically to this site of the Valley of Jezreel, or the Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. So this is a staging point, Armageddon, technically. It's not where a battle's actually fought. It's where all the armies of the world congregate. You see, the Antichrist, who's probably in Babylon, will then come 600 miles or so to the west with the armies of the world they'll meet in Armageddon and from there they will stage or launch their attacks against Jerusalem and try to defeat the Jews and so the first stage is just a gathering place there in Megiddo secondly the city of Babylon which will be Antichrist's headquarters at least in the second half of the tribulation that city will be destroyed by God. Revelation 17 and 18 describe that event. And again, Babylon is about 600 miles to the east of Israel. You can see it here. And what this means is, if we take scripture literally, the city of Babylon's gonna have to be rebuilt. And you say, well, it isn't yet, so, yeah, I know, but if the Antichrist is gonna be there seven years into the tribulation, they've got seven years to build this, right? In fact, I think it'll be built sooner than that. And there are two excellent books defending this future rebuilt Babylon. Andy Wood's book on it and Charlie Dyer's book on it as well. And by the way, can we just take God's word at face value? If you were a believer living 100 years ago and you were reading about prophetic events, for example, when Jesus returns... Right prior to that, during the tribulation time, it says the Antichrist is going to put a stop to the offerings there in Jerusalem. Doesn't that imply the temple has to be rebuilt? Yeah. Doesn't that imply Israel has to be back in their land if the Antichrist is going to come and attack them? Yeah. Doesn't that imply that the Jews have to control Jerusalem somewhat, as we'll see in Zechariah? Yeah. But let's say you were living in 1923. Israel's not even in the land. But if you took the word of God at face value, you would say, well, they have to get there. And they will eventually. And then, voila, 1948. They assert their national sovereignty. And guess what happens in 1948, May 14th? They're attacked immediately by surrounding Muslim nations. Literally, the baby is in the baby ward And people have guns drawn to kill the baby in the womb. But God says, won't let it happen. I have a plan for Israel right now. I'm preparing the stage for the return of my son and the events we read about in Scripture. I'm going to protect Israel. Then they were attacked again in 1967. What did God do in the Six-Day War? He protected them again. And that time, they got control of Jerusalem. And so you see the stage just continually being set more and more to fit what the Bible says as time goes on. So when it talks about Babylon, dear saints, just take it by faith. It's not there yet, but it will be. And the Antichrist will come with his armies to overtake the city of Jerusalem. That's what Scripture says. That's stage three in this campaign of Armageddon. They will lay siege to Jerusalem, and this is described in Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, a reference to the tribulation time, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city." And a fourth stage in this campaign is that the Antichrist will move southward then from Jerusalem down to where Jews are congregated in Basra or Petra in the region of Edom where these Jews have fled for protection. You say, well, where is Basra or Petra? And where is the region of Edom? Well, let's look at our map here. Going Southeast from Jerusalem, about 100 miles or so, you see Numbers 4 and 5 on the graphic here. That would be Petra or Basra. And so the Antichrist tries to attack the remnant of Jews who are alive at that time, right in this area here. And by the way, doesn't the Scripture say that God will provide a place of protection for the Jews? Matthew 24, verse 6 says, "When you see the Antichrist in the midpoint of the tribulation, all you Jews flee to the mountains." Revelation 12 says that God will provide a, a place of protection for them in the wilderness." Isaiah 33 says, "It will be a rocky place that is easily defended. And then we've got a specific prophecy like Micah 2:12, where it says, "I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will ga- surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra." like in a sheep pen. And you know, recently I was reading through the book of Daniel, and this passage just leaped out at me, describing the Antichrist and his movements in the tribulation time. It says in 1141, he, the Antichrist, shall also enter the glorious land, namely Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. You know where that circled red area is there, Ammon, Moab, and Edom? That's modern-day Jordan. And to the south, the region of Edom, is where Petra or Basra are located. And these will be areas for which, for some reason we don't know yet, the Antichrist will not be able to overcome. But particularly, it's prophesied the Jews will be gathered in Petra, which is the Greek word for rock. And as you know about Petra, if you've ever seen it, It's rock canyons, and the Edomites who lived there actually carved openings and entries and some very elaborate Roman-type architecture right into the rock. By the way, Basra means sheepfold, and it's sort of like a sheep pen where you've got a narrow entryway and these big canyons and cliffs. It's a great place to protect people, about 100 miles southeast of Jerusalem. Now, what does this tell us about the end times, that there will be building anti-Semitism? Do we see that today? Do we see on university campuses and places around the world all these protests against Israel, and they haven't even really started their ground invasion yet of Gaza? You just wait. Once they do that, the world will turn on them. The world somewhat, they have sympathy in the eyes of the world somewhat now, it'll turn on them even more. Why? Because Satan wants to destroy the Jews before they get a chance to repent. And that leads us to the next stage of this Battle of Armageddon or campaign. We will see in the fifth stage that the Jews down there in the south who are being protected will turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and be nationally delivered, but first they will be spiritually regenerated. The Jews will believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, call upon him, and experience national salvation. When Israel turns in faith to the Lord Jesus, they will then call out upon him, upon his name. Joel 2.32 will be fulfilled. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be physically delivered, saved. He will hear their cries, and he will rescue them. It says in Zechariah 12, 9 and 10, that in that day... I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. That's Jesus Christ. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And they will say, oh, we were wrong for centuries. But the Lord will hear their cries. And that's the sixth stage here the second coming of Jesus Christ. When they turn to him in faith, he will protect them. Romans 11, verse 25 through 27 says, Blindness in part during this age of grace has happened to the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved in that future time. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He'll come from Jerusalem and uh, and out of that area to protect his people. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So their regeneration and their physical deliverance are all rolled into one big event here. So sixthly, the Lord Jesus will return in great power and glory to rescue the regenerated Jews at Basra and then judge the armies of the world. Right after his return to deliver them, And this is where he tramples his enemies and he gets his garments stained blood red. He then goes to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the seventh stage here. He returns to fight for the remnant of Jews in Jerusalem and judge the armies of the nations in what's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, Joel chapter 3 describes. Now the word Jehoshaphat is in Hebrew simply the Lord judges. And I think this is probably a a figurative expression for the region where he judges. I don't think that any one place in Israel can be identified as the Valley of Jehoshaphat per se. Joel chapter 3 says in in verse 2 that this judgment takes place because the nations have sought to divide up my land. Isn't that interesting? And then you read a little further in verses 12 and 13, it says this. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Remember? Where God judges. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. That's what's coming. So he saves his people in Basra, He then goes to a valley of Jehoshaphat. Some have said that this is the Kidron Valley that runs between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount area, just to the east of the Temple Mount there. I'm not so sure. I think the Valley of Jehoshaphat could just be a reference to a whole area where judgment's taking place. By the way, some of these details, there's disagreement among good dispensational scholars. So we have to show some grace here as far as the exact details but I think this is the best explanation I've seen so far the last stage of this campaign is the Lord Jesus ascends to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem and he splits it in two remember the Mount of Olives is right there in Jerusalem across from the Temple Mount area we have a passage Zechariah 14 3 & 4 that says this then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, and half of it toward the south. By the way, there's a fault line that runs from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba, but that's north-south. This is a split that's going to go east to west. And... That could be related to that. So half of it will be split toward the north, the other half towards the south. So that's what happens. That's the battle of Armageddon. Jesus Christ is victorious. Now what happens to the Antichrist and false prophet and Satan at this time? Revelation 19 goes on and wraps it up by saying in verses 19 through 21, I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and his army. That's the whole campaign of Armageddon summarized right there. Verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And chapter 20 tells us the Antichrist and false prophet will still be there 1,000 years later, not consumed in the lake of fire. They get a 1,000 year head start with the rest of the lost from all humanity. And the rest, these other armies, were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, what about Satan himself? Chapter 20 goes on to say, verses 1 through 3, that he was cast into the bottomless pit and a seal was put over it for 1,000 years. Can you imagine what earth will be like without any satanic influence for 1,000 years? You don't ever have to wonder if the news you're going to hear will be true. It'll be, you know, total truth network, TTN. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, Scripture says. There'll be peace on earth, no more war. Wow, I can't wait. Can you? And we will rule and reign with him in righteousness. What about the rest of the nations? You know, besides their armies who came, what about the rest of the Gentiles? Well, we know Matthew 25 says there'll be a sheep and goat judgment, just to put this on the timeline as well. That will take place right around the time of Jesus having conquered his enemies here in Israel. Right after that, I think, will be the sheep and goat judgment. Because in Matthew 25, it says he sets up his throne, and then he brings all the nations there to judge them. And so that's where all this takes place, right at the end of the tribulation, as the kingdom's about to begin. And you just got a preview of what's coming, what might be here as early as seven years from now. Wouldn't that be amazing? Either way, we're going to be there to watch it, dear saints. Now, we've asked many questions about this return of Christ in the battle of Armageddon, but our last question to address is the wherefore of it all. Why is the return of Christ in Armageddon coming, and why should it matter to us? Well, it is necessary for true righteousness and justice to prevail. It is necessary for rebellious unbelievers to be removed from Christ's coming kingdom, the kingdom that he promised. It is necessary to save the nation of Israel and fulfill his covenant promises to them. And it's necessary for us to understand and rest assured that God is in complete control of the past, the present, and our future as well. So faith rest tonight, dear saints. Jesus wins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. And these glorious, marvelous truths we have to look forward to. I pray that our understanding uh, of Jesus Christ would just be expanded here tonight. That we would look to him as the all-sufficient Savior, both at his first coming and his second. So we thank you for him. And we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.